Hey there, folks. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum, a podcast dedicated to increasing kindness and understanding in the world. I try to demystify the conservative position on a variety of subjects and also share Torah and other Jewish lessons to help us all in our journey to become better people. So thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy. As always, if you have an opportunity, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, and it makes me feel good. So it's a win all around. Mondays, we talk culture, politics, current events, and on Fridays, we talk the weekly Torah portion or some other thought from Judaism. Today, we are going to talk about the holiday of Purim, because that is the holiday today. So happy Purim to everyone who is celebrating. There is so much to learn from this holiday. It is possible that this will be a slightly longer than usual episode, though I'm going to try to keep it short, but there's really just so much. The story is so rich and so layered. I can't say that it's my favorite holiday, but only because it's very hard for me to pick favorites of anything. Ask anyone who knows me. I don't have a favorite food, a favorite movie, favorite color. It's just too hard because there are so many wonderful things to enjoy. Why limit oneself to one particular favorite? So this might not be my favorite holiday, but it is a lot of fun and there's so much to learn. So let's get right into it. Purim celebrates the miraculous Jewish survival against the Persian vizier Haman in the mid 300s before the common era, BCE. On the outside, and how I sometimes explain it to friends, if I'm just giving a very quick explanation, I'll call it the Jewish Halloween, which hardly encapsulates it, but they do overlap in some of the ways that they're celebrated because we do dress up on Purim and we also give gifts of food to friends, which is similar because on Halloween people dress up and give out candy to each other, and it's just a general time for merriment. However, as I mentioned before, there is so much more to the story of Purim than even a first glance or a second or even a third deep read of the story would suggest. There's always more to be learned, sort of like it is with all of the Torah. One can read it through again and again and again, and every time there is more to learn, more to discover. This is true also with not sacred books. Every time I read through Harry Potter, I discover something new that I missed on a previous read, something that I have a different understanding of because I'm older or because I finally picked up on it. So that's certainly true for the Torah and for the story of Purim, except magnified by a thousand. We'll talk about the lessons to be learned and how we can appreciate the lessons of Purim in our own lives. But to start, I'm going to give a as brief as possible summary of the story of Purim. Perhaps a refresher for some of you. For others, maybe this is the first time you'll have heard the story. The story comes from the book of Esther, or in Hebrew, we say Megillah. We read the whole Megillah on Purim. And this is the story in a nutshell. Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. He is a decadent drunk of a king. He decides to throw a huge party to celebrate his reign. At this party, he commands his wife Vashti, who is hosting her own party for the women, to attend his party. We don't know exactly why he wants her there. He says that he wants to show off her beauty, but in his drunken, debaucherous state with all these people that he's trying to impress, how does he want her to appear? What exactly does he want her to do? Clearly, he wants her to show herself off. We just don't know exactly what it means, but we can imagine, given the time and the place and the drunkenness, that this was not a PG situation. So Vashti refuses, and Ahasuerus is angered. 
he consults his advisors who encourage him to send Vashti away. So Vashti is sent away, and now there's no queen. And now Akash is sad. He has no queen. He is somewhat remorseful for the perhaps hasty decision to get rid of his queen. So now he needs a new queen. And the way it is determined that a new queen will be chosen is that all of the beautiful maidens from all of the lands which he oversees, which is 127, will be paraded before him and he will make his choice of who will be his next queen. So all of the beautiful girls from every province are taken against their wishes, or maybe some would like to go there. Some might be escaping a rather horrid life, but they don't have a choice in the matter. They're given a year to prep themselves and get the finest clothing and jewelry and perfumes. And then each is paraded before the king and the king decides whether or not he wants to keep them. I read an interesting commentary once that indicated that even the girls who weren't chosen didn't go back to their lives at home because part of the choosing process was that Ahasuerush took advantage of them. And once a woman has slept with the king, she's not available to any other man. So essentially, he just either had a huge harem of women or all of these women who had to live celibate. For all these faceless women that we don't learn about, it might be a sad story. Though again, who knows, for some of them, maybe they were escaping even worse situations. Hard to know. The story does not focus on them. The story instead focuses on Esther, the niece of a man named Mordechai. She is Jewish. He's also Jewish. And she's one of the girls included and brought to the palace. Mordechai reminds her when she goes not to reveal that she's a Jew. The Jews are currently living in Persia after the Babylonian exile. It's not a secret that Jews exist there, but Mordechai just deems it safer not to broadcast the fact. So Esther, like the other girls, has the one year to prepare as she's in the palace, and lo and behold, her beauty outshines all the others. She is the one that Ahasuerus chooses to be queen. So she lives in the palace as queen, and Mordechai stays around the palace as much as possible to keep tabs on her and make sure that she's safe. While he is there, he overhears a plot to kill the king from these two guys whose names we do get. Their names are Big Sun and Seresh. It's interesting whose names are saved in traditional texts and whose names are not. Anyway, he hears the plot. He transmits it to Esther. Esther informs the king. The king is saved. The traitors are put to death, and Mordechai's good deed is recorded in a book of chronicles for the king. At this time, a man named Haman becomes basically second in command to the king, like the grand vizier. He is very self-important. He orders people to bow down to him as he walks through the streets or through the palace, and everyone does, except for Mordechai, who refuses on the grounds that a Jew does not bow down to any to anyone who is in God. This really angers Haman, and he decides that because Mordechai has angered him, he's now going to kill all of the Jews. If you can see the logic in the step that goes from, I hate Mordechai to let's get rid of all Jews, please let me know. Don't think it's there. So Haman casts a lot of when he wants to kill all of the Jews, which is in fact why the holiday is named Purim, because Pur means lot and Im is just the pluralized form, which is Interesting, if you think about it, that we name our holiday based upon something negative. Haman cast a lot of the time when he would destroy the Jews, and yet that's what we name our holiday. It's just interesting. Anyway, he cast this lot. He decides on the 13th of Adar is going to be the day. He convinces the king to create a decree that will, that makes the 13th of Adar the day that the Jews will be destroyed and all people are to participate in this destruction. So this decree is sent out to all the lands. Mordechai hears of the decree, as do the other Jews in the lands, and they are terrified. Mordechai sits in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther hears about that, there's a little bit of a back and forth, and finally Mordechai tells Esther to do something about it, that she should 
speak to Achashverosh and get it stopped. Esther tells Mordechai that she can't go before the king because there is a law that one is only allowed to go before the king when summoned, and if not summoned, one risks death. But Mordechai convinces Esther, which we will get into a little bit later, and Esther agrees that she will indeed go to see the king, but first she's going to fast for three days and pray, and she also asks that the Jewish community fast and pray on her behalf for three days. So everyone does, and she goes before the king, and thankfully he grants her audience instead of killing her. She requests that Achashverosh himself and Haman come to a banquet that she will prepare. They go to the banquet, and then the king asks, all right, what is your real desire? And she says, come again to one more banquet tomorrow, which they both agree to. So Haman is now on cloud nine because he's super rich, he's super powerful, and he also just got invited to basically a private meal with the king and queen. That's really important stuff. So he's on cloud nine, then he sees Mordechai, his mortal enemy who won't bow down to him, and he's totally clouded over. He can't be happy in the face of this one thing that's bothering him. So he decides to build high gallows on which he's going to hang Mordechai. So he gets those built. Meanwhile, King Achash Verosh has a sleepless night. He calls for his servants to read from him his book of Chronicles. They read to him about when Mordechai foiled the assassination plot, and King Achashverosh realizes that Mordechai has never been rewarded for this event. The next time Achashverosh sees Haman, he asks Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor? Well, Haman assumes this is about him. So he paints this grandiose picture of the person being dressed in royal clothes and being led around by the most important person on the king's own horse. And Achashverosh says, great, do all of that to Mordechai. So now Haman has to lead around. Mordechai has this reward, which of course just makes Haman more angry. Then the second banquet happens. Now at the second banquet, King Achashverosh again asks Esther, what is it that she wants? She says that her people are going to be brutally murdered. Achashverosh says, who are your people who would do this to you? And Esther reveals that Haman is the one who put it in place and that she is actually a Jew. Achashverosh is enraged. He orders Haman to be hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordechai. Then Esther asks for the decree which will allow all of the neighbors to kill the Jews to be rescinded. However, there is a quirk in Persian law that doesn't allow laws to be rescinded, only other ones to be made on top of it or in addition. So Achashverosh writes a decree that the Jews are able and allowed to fight back against their attackers, which is then sent around to all of the nations. And then the on the fateful day, the Jews respond to their attackers, the Jews prevail, and on the following day, after prevailing, the Jews celebrate. And that is a very brief-ish summary of the story of Purim. So as I mentioned, there's a lot to delve into here. I've picked a few topics that stood out to me and that have lessons that we can all learn from and apply starting right now. The interesting thing when reading this story is how it seems that this all happens very quickly. It seems like this all happens basically within a calendar year. However, it turns out that the party that King Ahasuerosh throws happens in the third year of his reign. Esther is brought before the king in the seventh year of his reign. So that's four years between that first party and then when Esther becomes queen. And then it's in the twelfth year that Haman casts the lot to choose what is the day that the Jews will be attacked. This is not a quick story, but this is this is history happening over at least a decade. Why is this interesting? So one of the major themes of Purim 
is that everything is divinely ordained. Interestingly, God's name is not mentioned once in the Megillah. So everything appears to be a series of perfectly coincidental human events that allow this miracle to take place. However, however, even though God's name is not mentioned, we are supposed to realize that for everything to work out in this particularly perfect way, and for this miracle to happen, that God was indeed there. But sometimes we don't see God in everything that happens until later. At the end of all of these things, when you read the story and think about how perfectly everything worked out, of course it had to be planned, and of course God had to do it. But to see each of these events on their own, especially with such a large time span, a decade at least, of all of these events happening, it's not so clear that it's a miracle. And that's true in our own lives. We see each event as it happens, but we don't have the benefit of being in the future and looking back at everything that happens. So each event in our life, whether it's a person we meet or a job we get, or an God forbid, an accident that happens to us, everything that happens, whether good or bad, we don't have the ability necessarily to see it in a larger context because we live in linear time, thing happens. And then the next thing happens and the next thing happens, but we don't always see how it all comes together until, if we're lucky, much later. And then we might realize that the reason we have a job we love is because in college, we had that roommate who five years later told us about an internship possibility. And at that internship, we got a job that led us to Texas. And when we were in Texas, we met someone, you know, all of these things, but we don't, we don't see them in a contracted moment like we do with the Perm story when events of over 10 years are contracted into 10 fairly short chapters. And we get to see how each event happened because we don't have the ability to see our lives from the end until the end, we can get caught up in each particular event and think that everything is happening randomly and that there's no plan, that nothing means anything. All of those thoughts can be so stressful and so depressing because it makes our lives feel meaningless. That's why it's so important to, just from like a psychological standpoint, to believe in God and to believe that things are planned. I don't have any hard evidence proof for you to tell you that God exists and that everything is planned. I have enough bits of evidence to convince myself and I have also taken that leap of faith and I feel that life is that way, but I cannot prove it to you. I can only tell you that thinking that way pretty much guaranteed is going to make you happier because then even the bad things that happen in your life, you're able to put within a greater context of there's a purpose to this, and the purpose is good because God is dictating it. I might not know what the purpose is, but I know that this thing that's happening to me right now has purpose. And when things have purpose, instead of being meaningless, we feel better. It's that, it's that easy. We feel better. We like knowing that our lives are worth something. And to add on to that, when you feel like your life has purpose, then you also make your life have purpose and you make your life have meaning. If we know that God is planning everything and everything is happening for a reason, every circumstance that we find ourselves in has a particular purpose. We might not necessarily know what their grander purpose is, or why we have this particular job, or why we lost this particular job, why we met this person, why we lost this friend, why we broke our leg, why we won a marathon. We might not know the exact purpose for each circumstance, but if we know that God is planning it, then we know it's ultimately for the good, and we can help him along the way in that good. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, the minimal purpose 
is to make that situation, to make that place, that community, whatever it is, better. Again, we might not know the overall plan, but we always have the capability of giving purpose and meaning to the circumstances we find ourselves in by being a force for good, a force for justice, a force for kindness, a force for godliness, a force for all of those good things in the situation where we find ourselves. And sometimes that might be the exact purpose you are where you are. There might also be a larger purpose, but at the very least, your purpose is always to positively influence the sphere or the community or the job that you are in. So knowing that things happen for a reason and knowing what your purpose is or trying to find your purpose. Lesson one from Purim. A second interesting thought about the holiday, is it a feminist holiday? The Megillah is named for Esther, not for Mordechai, it's named for the woman. And also Vashti, in a way, could be a feminist icon. I really like this interpretation from Joseph Telushkin. So usually Vashti is painted as a villain. When we learn the story as kids in school, Vashti is usually not painted in the best light. And to be fair, she might not have been a really nice woman. She was married to Ahasuerosh, and she was also hosting a party at the same time. So she might have been just as debaucherous and debased, and she might not have been a very nice person. However, in her moment of defiance, she is a feminist icon. And this is Joseph Telushkin's point. She does not give in to Ahasuerosh. And again, we don't know exactly why, but it's very likely that his intentions with her were lascivious. And so it's pretty reasonable that she did not want to be paraded in front of a bunch of men doing something not PG. And when Ahasuerosh asks his advisors what to do with her, the advisor who finally convinces him, whose name is Mumuchan, who commentary suggests is another name for Haman, he advises Ahasuerosh to get rid of Vashti because if Vashti's behavior becomes known, if it becomes known that she's defiant to the king, then wives throughout the kingdom will become defiant to their husbands and not just listen to everything their husband tells them to do, which is what convinces Ahasuerosh and he gets rid of Vashti and there's not really any indication whether or not any other women hear and then act in that similar way. It's just an interesting read to paint Vashti in that particular moment as a role model for women, which points out that people are very rarely all good or all bad, and she might have been a not nice person in a lot of other ways. But she made a stand for women and she made a stand for decency, so good for her. And of course, the Megillah is named for Esther, one of the probably most known heroines in all of Judaism. There are, of course, the matriarchs, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, but Esther might be the next most famous of all of them. It's very common that little girls like to dress up as Queen Esther, not just because girls like dressing up as princesses, but because she is a woman worth being the role model to a young girl because she is courageous when she needs to be and does what is right. So maybe not a new wave feminist holiday, but certainly a first wave feminist holiday. As I mentioned in the story, one of the reasons Haman is angry at Mordechai and therefore all of the Jews is because Mordechai refuses to bow down to him. When I was in school, we were always taught that a Jew does not bow down to anyone but God, which makes perfect sense to me. We certainly don't bow down to idols, and I would find it very weird to bow down to a human. But I was reading in Joseph Telushkin's Biblical Literacy, and he points out that there's actually a lot of discussion about Mordechai's answer that he doesn't bow down to Haman because he's a Jew, because apparently there is no express law against bowing down to a monarch, for instance, if that is the 
rule of the land. So Mordechai could have bowed down to Haman. So why did he not bow down to Haman? The reason is because Haman was a descendant of Amalek. You might remember Amalek from the Torah portion a few weeks ago, just after the Israelites left Egypt, they camped at a place called Rephidim to get water, and there the Amalekites attacked the rear portion of the camp, and the rear portion of the camp is where the people who move a little slower, so younger, elderly, maybe disabled, and the Amalekites attacked them for no reason, because the Israelites were not passing through Amalekite land, they weren't challenging the Amalekites or anything the Amalekites just decided to attack this wandering band of Israelites. So Amalek is the Jews' main enemy. With other nations, the Israelites might have fought for land, or if they attack them, the Israelites fight back. There are political things. The Israelites fought with people because nations war with each other. That's the unfortunate truth of human history. But the Amalekites are a particular enemy. So Haman is descended from them. And He's proud of it. Talashkin makes a very good comparison. And he says, imagine if in 500 years from now, someone makes the claim that they're descended from Adolf Eichmann. Now, someone can't help being descended from who they're descended from. But if you make a big deal out of being descended from an evil person, then you're making a connection between you and that evil person that you're proud of coming from them. So Haman was proud of descending from the Amalekites. And Mordechai was not going to bow down to someone who proudly proclaimed themselves as a member of the Jews' enemy. So Mordechai doesn't bow down, which begins Haman's anger. And then Haman, instead of just lashing out at Mordechai, he decides to annihilate all of the Jews. And when people talk about Haman's plan, they often use the terms final solution, the same way that in World War II, the plan to get rid of all the Jews was called the final solution. There is a very similar feeling between these two because Haman sought to kill all the Jews and it didn't matter what age they were, but Haman sought to destroy everyone, which would not have been a big deal, except he convinced the king to allow him to make it happen. And how did he convince King Ahasuerus? He said, and this is a translation from the Megillah, there is a certain people scattered and separate among the peoples throughout all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws differ from those of every people, and they do not keep the king's laws. It is therefore of no use for the king to let them be. That is the end of the quote. That anti-Jewish propaganda, and I say anti-Jewish as opposed to anti-Semitic, because sometimes when you say anti-Semitic, people lump in all Semite people, so they sort of lump in Jews, Muslims together, but anti-Jewish hatred is a specific thing. So I use that term because I want to be very clear what we're talking about. His anti-Jewish propaganda is similar to how anti-Jewish propaganda exists throughout the world in all times. The Jews are painted as this nation that keeps to themselves, that doesn't, that a nation that doesn't follow the laws of the land. People, as you might have noticed, don't really get along with other people very well, people who are different from who they are. We're pretty good at it in the US and we work at it really hard because it's one of our foundational principles that all men are created equal. But even here, it's not always so easy, certainly not so easy throughout the rest of the world where they don't have that as a foundational principle. It's very easy, even if people do get along, it can be easy to exploit the natural predisposition to not get along with people who are different. So Haman was basically the first anti-Jewish propagandizer. He probably would have been welcomed in Germany in 1930 or in Spain in 1492 or any of the other places where Jews have been ousted or killed systematically. We'll go on to the next point, which is actually something we can learn from Haman, something that we can apply to our lives, and this has a more positive spin. 
way more positive. As a reminder of the story, Haman is invited to Esther's banquet. And he's so excited. He's on cloud nine because he thinks he's literally the most important ever. Still, Mordechai won't bow down to him. And he cannot be happy. The text says that he cannot be happy because Mordechai won't bow down to him. All of his riches, all of his power, the invitation to the banquet, none of it means anything to him because Mordechai won't bow down to him. He is totally sabotaging his own happiness by focusing on the bad instead of the good. Haman had everything going for him. He had the king's ear. He had a wife. He had 10 sons and a daughter. He had riches. He had power. He had everything. He could have been content. He could have been happy, but he chose to focus on the hatred that festered inside of him. And he decided to allow that to dictate how he felt and to dictate his actions instead of focusing on the good. And in the end, he was hanged on the gallows that he built. So this one's really easy. Focus on the good in your life, not on the bad. We all have good in our lives and we all have bad in our lives. Some of us are blessed that the good outweighs the bad. Some of us, unfortunately, are in circumstances that the bad outweighs the good. However, oftentimes it has to do with perspective. If we want to find the good in our lives and focus on that, we will continue to see more and more good. They might not all be big, amazing, huge goods. You can't get married every day. You can't fall in love every day or get a new job or get a promotion or get a new car, whatever. Not every day is going to be amazingly, fantastically good, but there are good things in every day. And if you choose to focus on that, you can find them. But if we choose to focus on the bad, then we can find that. Some days will certainly be worse than others. There are days when we experience incredible loss and sadness and pain and anger, but There are also days of just little bads. We can focus on hitting every red light, the water in the shower not being hot enough, Starbucks being out of the pastry we wanted, or we can focus on having extra time in the car to finish the podcast we wanted to listen to, or the fact that we were able to take a shower because we have clean running water, even if it's not the temperature we want, or the fact that we decided to eat something healthier because our favorite pastry wasn't at Starbucks. So all of those situations, we can choose to see the bad or we can choose to see the good. We can choose to be like Haman and let the bad overtake us and focus only on the bad and then never get to enjoy the good in our lives. Or we can choose to focus on the good. What you see is what you will have more of. If you choose to see the good, you will continue to find more good. It's just about shifting our focus and reframing how we look at life. That's something any one of us can do. It's about being grateful, being aware of every little blessing that we have. If we have clean running water and a house to live in, a fridge stocked with food, we are already so much more blessed than maybe billions of people around the world. We don't look at those as blessings because we're used to them. We think they're facts of life, but they're not. And if we choose to be grateful for all of those things and focus on the good things that we have in life, we'll be happier. Haman basically created his own demise by focusing on the negative. We don't want to be that. We want to find the good in our lives so that we can bring more goodness to our lives. So look, we can even learn something from Haman. One more thing that we can learn from Esther, which I touched on earlier, but I want to come back to more specifically. So Esther was made the queen and she doesn't really know why she of all the girls is chosen, but she is until the decree is passed and Mordechai urges Esther to go talk to Ahasuerus, asking him to rescind the decree. Esther is understandably scared to approach the king. She could be killed for approaching the king without being invited. And she tells Mordechai that. She says, I'm in fear for my life. I can't go. How does he respond to her? He says, this is a translation from the Megillah. 
Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from among all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise for the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether at a time like this you will attain the kingdom. There's two things there. Firstly, Mordechai reminds Esther that just because she doesn't say anything, it doesn't mean she'll be safe. She might be safe in that exact moment, but she could still be in danger. This moment of Mordechai telling Esther that she might not be safe reminds me of that quotation from Pastor Niemöller. It's German. It's very likely I'm saying that incorrectly. He wrote, quote, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me, unquote. That always makes me very emotional. We might think we're safe because there's another public enemy in our particular moment, but there's no guarantee of safety. And if we're not willing to speak up for people when we have a voice to speak up, there will be no one left to speak for us. And that's the situation that Esther found herself in. She had an opportunity to speak up and do something, and she was afraid. And Mordechai reminded her that just because you think you're safe now does not mean you will always be safe. If you don't speak up, if you're silent now, number one, he does, he says that relief and rescue will arise from elsewhere. So someone else will become a hero or God will assert himself more visibly, but it also doesn't assure her safety. And the other thing he says to convince her is that maybe it was for this very reason that you are in the position you're in. And maybe you, listener, are in the position you are in for a very particular reason, which is what we talked about earlier, the idea of believing in divine providence and that things happen for a reason. We might not know why we are where we are, but if every day we ask ourselves, what good are we able to do today because of the situation where we are, whether it's monetarily or just the location that we're in or the skills we have, whatever the case may be, what good can we do given the circumstances that we find ourselves in? That is a pretty powerful question to ask oneself each morning as a guide for the day. How am I going to live my life today? What am I going to work on today? It gives one purpose and purpose makes us feel good. I went into this topic a lot earlier, so I won't delve into it too much. I just wanted to return to it briefly. So those are a few of the lessons to learn from Perm. And there are so many more, as I said, I could really talk about Perm for ages and ages. It is so, it feels so much more relevant and timely than some of the other biblical stories do. And it could be because we celebrate it so specifically each year or because of how the story is told or because there aren't any miracles in the story and everything seemingly happens just by how humans work. And we might not see miracles or perceive miracles in our daily lives, but we do see things like this happen. Someone might be elected or people get married. We see the things that happen here. We don't always see the end result or why they happen, but there's just something very immediate about the Purim story. The last thing I want to say about Purim is how we celebrate it. So as I mentioned before, we do dress up. We dress up to hide our identities because Esther hid her true identity as a Jew. In fact, her name Esther means hidden. Her Jewish name was Hadassah. We also eat hamantaschen, which are triangular cookies filled with usually jam, sometimes poppy seed, because apparently that's a tradition. I don't know why, because poppy seeds on bagels are great. Poppy seeds as a filling is a little weird, but that is the tradition. The reason they're shaped like a triangle is because we're told that 
Haman's hat was shaped like a triangle, which is interesting because the main food associated with Purim has to do with the villain of the story. There are four specific mitzvot or commandments that we are supposed to follow on Purim. We hear the story of Esther. So we hear the Megillah read twice, once in the evening and once in the morning. We have a festive meal, so a big feast, which should include bread, but then any other type of food that one desires. We give gifts of food to friends. Those are called shalach manat, which interestingly, as I was creating my own shalach manat, I went to the 99 cent store and I like to put them in baskets. Instead of just putting them in a bag, people like to make pretty displays of the gifts. And I thought how convenient it was that there were all these baskets at the store because people are putting together Easter baskets. And it got me wondering whether or not Easter baskets came about because of Shalach Manot, because these two holidays often occur around the same time. They might not have anything to do with each other. I didn't look into it. It was just a thought that struck me that that was interesting. And finally, we give charity to the poor, which I just think is a really nice aspect of this holiday in the midst of all the celebrating. We can't forget those in our community who are most in need and giving charity is a commandment every day, but is a specific commandment also on this holiday. The one other fun thing about Purim is that people are actually commanded to get drunk. Adults, obviously, not children. Generally, drunkenness is not condoned in Judaism. People drink ceremonial wine, maybe a glass, but there's not really a ton of big drinking going on in Judaism. The one other holiday where it does happen is Simchat Torah, where we also dance and we're celebrating the Torah. But specifically on Purim, we're supposed to get drunk until we don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai, because This is a holiday where things got flipped around. The bad decree of Haman got flipped around to the good and the Jews were prosperous. The gallows that were meant to be for Mordecai were meant for Haman. So things got flipped around. So we drink until things get flipped around. So it's a very fun holiday. It will probably be different this year because of COVID. Last year, Purim was the final event for a lot of shuls because the lockdowns started like the next week. So it will be interesting to know what different synagogues are doing this year and how they're celebrating. No matter how people celebrate, it is a, it's a fun holiday and so meaningful. And I hope there was something in what I said that was resonant with you because this holiday is so resonant with me and I wanted to share it. I hope everyone has a really great weekend. Remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!